Hello and welcome to the New Books and Anthropology podcast. My name is Astrid County. Today we'll be listening to Pedro Oliveira. He is double trained in psychology and anthropology. Pedro Oliveira is an independent innovation consultant working in various sectors from consumer goods to technology. He's held teaching appointments on qualitative methods in marketing and design schools. A published author in the field of business anthropology, he's an editor of the International Journal of Business Anthropology. Pedro also has been a guest speaker at the Copenhagen Business School and at Sun Yat-sen University. He has a passion for applying anthropological research methods, ethnography, to problems of corporations and writing about it in a language that's open to all. Today we'll be speaking with Mr. Pedro Oliveria, who is the author of People-Centered Innovation, Becoming a Practitioner in Innovation Research. And this is a very interesting book that chronicles Mr. Oliveria's transition from being a clinical psychologist to an anthropologist, and also working in business and innovation. So I want to say hello to you, Pedro. And we can start with you giving us a little bit of background as to how you became a psychologist and then transitioned into anthropology. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. You know, it's a great, great pleasure to talk to you, and it's a great pleasure to talk to an American audience, because... (laughs) You know, I think, you know, sometimes it's funny because Americans seem more interested in what I have to say than people in my own country. So I'm always always very, very happy to talk with anyone in America, really. (laughs) From the conversation we had previously, I can also see that we we, we could have a big, a long conversation about all sorts of things having to do with psychology and anthropology beyond this book. So, yes, I'm always very pleased to talk to Americans. So the other thing that I want to say um, is that how did I, yeah, how did I uh, went from psychology to anthropology? Well, you know, I um, decided to go to psychology. I think I was very young when I made that choice, most of us are, and I was 18 years old, and of course I was very influenced by the whole cinema, you know, cinematic and film construction on psychology as the kind of... Um, sort of omnipotent power of reading other people's minds and, you know, there was a whole construction in, and I think that's the reason why plenty of us when we're 18 years old go to psychology because we're not sure what to do with our lives and there's that whole construction that you have from the movies that you, you kind of like to pursue. Um, and then, you know, the training in psychology works very differently from America and from the UK, the training here in Portugal. I'm in my late 30s, so this was a few, a few years ago. But when I trained in psychology, um, you know, you did three years of general psychology and then you did two years of specialization with supervised practice. And you could either choose organizational psychology, educational or clinical. So I chose clinical, and I did a specialization of two years with supervised practice, dissertation, etc. And I, you know, I'm in, in, in Portugal and some places of Europe, I've, I've qualified as a clinical psychologist, and, and I've worked as such as well, you know, both in the UK and Portugal for a few years. Um, I think the reason when, uh, why anthropology came into it was that when I was studying uh, clinical psychology, we had the option of going and taking two modules of anthropology at the anthropology department, which at the the time was something very, very exotic to do. You know, you'd think, why would I go and study anthropology if I'm on the way to become a mental health practitioner? Why would I do that? And But I always had great, great curiosity. And uh, I had an anthropology teacher in high school, which is, again, a bit unusual, I think. Um, And so I always had great curiosity about the subject. And so, you know, the moment I stepped in on my first two modules of anthropology, 
with uh, Susana Viegas, a, a brilliant Portuguese anthropologist, still a very, very close friend of mine, um, and Luis Quintais, um, I, I went like, wow, this is really amazing. Because, and the reason why it felt amazing to me is that because it sounded like a project of changing society. Right? It didn't just sound like a discipline. It sounded like a new way of thinking society and a new way of acting upon it. And, mm-hmm. and so I was immediately taken back by it and, uh, and went on to do a, a doctorate, to do a PhD in, in the UK, which I, which I finished, sponsored by the Portuguese Foundation for Science and Technology. Um, and yeah, and went on from there. So uh, I wouldn't say it was a smooth passage because they're very different disciplines in some ways. But I would say that it was it was a very very rich one. Could you talk a little about the difference between the two? Because one thing I have noticed is a lot of times social scientists kind of get grouped together, and yeah. it's not easy for people to tell like why it would be different to say I'm doing anthropology after doing psychology. Yeah, well I think. A lot of the difference, as we were talking about previously, has to do a bit with methods. So, you know, anthropologists do, or tend to do, what is called ethnography. Uh, And when you do ethnography, uh, and and again, now I'm going to talk, assuming that we're going to have a general audience for this, and not necessarily just uh, academic anthropologists or anthropologists listening to this interview. So I'm going to talk to you in the same way that I talk about it in my book, which is that any given person can read it and get a sense of what we do. Um, so anthropologists do ethnography. So what that means is that basically you choose a particular topic, and that might be a particular sort of group of people, for instance, the Portuguese community in London. And then you go and you sort of try to spend time with the people, you um, interview the people, and you try to participate in their everyday lives. And by doing so, you kind of give up on your position of expertise. You assume that the people that you're spending time with and interviewing continuously are the experts, and you're there to learn with them. Um, I think psychology has very, very different methods, and also, um, you know, a different epistemological basis behind it. Psychology, um, research in, in psychology is far more influenced by um, the philosophy of research in the natural sciences. So obviously what you do in psychology is that you tend to start with an hypothesis, a very sort of uh, defined hypothesis. So you're probably, going back to the question of the Portuguese in London, the Portuguese community in London, you'd probably study something, I don't know, what would be a psychological hypothesis to study on that case, but it could be something on the kind of, you know, You'd compare rates of well-being in the Portuguese community living in one part of London and living in a different part of London. And you'd compare it by using surveys, by using quantitative methodologies, by using statistics. And, you know, and it would be a different, different kind of approach. So the hypothesis that you start with psychology is always a bit more closed than the kind of ideas that you started in anthropology. I think those are the main differences. Then, you know, it, it kind of branches on to a whole series of, of things. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so one of, the, one, of, one of the things that I found really interesting about your book was that you wrote it in a very um, colloquial manner so that it was quite easy for any lay person to read. So I would like you to speak a little bit about why you chose to do this, especially about fields that are so highly specialized like anthropology and psychology. Yeah, well, do you know, that's a very good question. Thank you for that question. Um, do you know, I write about anthropology and industry. 
or other people would call it business anthropology, which is something that we're still talking about in the field, which is what, what is the right name that we're going to give it, because we keep on multiplying these names, right? You, you hear things like corporate anthropology, business anthropology, anthropology in industry, and we're all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things. I wanted to write particularly about this field. And yes, you know, psychology and anthropology are there because I'm double I'm training in both. So of course they both influence my work and what I do. But most of all, I wanted to write a book about what anthropologists do in industry, and by that I mean working in consumer goods, working in marketing research, working in technological development, working in all the areas that we can work when we work in industry. Um, and uh, what we do in a way that would be understandable by any given person. So that implied two kinds of uh, challenges. That implied the challenge of making the book colloquial to the point that somebody who never heard of the word anthropology before, or even if they did, you know, weren't very sure about what anthropology is about. You know, people who might have an image of anthropology being something like Indiana Jones going around, you know, the Lost Temple, which is something that we mm-hmm. guess a lot when we tell people that we're anthropologists. You know, people who really don't know a lot about it. And, you know, they could read the book and they could get a sense of what we do. So that was one of the challenges of making it colloquial, to introduce anthropology to people who really don't know much about the subjects and what we do. Then the second challenge in making it colloquial was to introduce the book to people who may have a sense of what anthropology is, or even to people who are anthropologists themselves, but have no um, definite sense of what people do when they're anthropologists in industry, when they are practitioners. So that involved introducing the book in another way. So what mm-hmm. I came up was with, a, with a series of strategies, of literary strategies, if you like, of rhetoric devices, by which you know, I used my own biography to sort of to make this introduction of anthropology to different kinds of audiences, to the different mm-hmm. kinds of people who may decide to interact with this book. So my biography is really a cover. <laughs> Actually, it's not the most important thing. It's really a means to an end. It's a way of engaging in a conversation with people that might be very, very different than people who read this book and have very different degrees of knowledge. Um, a last thing that I'm going to say, I tend to give long answers. So there you go. Mm-hmm. But a last thing that I'm going to say is that I think it's also important to say that by the end of the book, I start sketching a theoretical model of how psychology and anthropology sort of um, uh, exists in the work in industry. And now we can actually, by comparing different cases of work in industry, we may come to a theory that doesn't look exactly like the theories of the human sciences, because it's a bit more technical. Right, it's a, bit, it's a bit more of a technical theory, one that allows you to do things with rather than just thinking about things. Yes, and we should say that the book contains a lot of cases so that you can read the different ways in which you're applying the ethnographic research and some even um, also some psychological methods, yeah. which is something I wanted to ask you is when you were constructing this book, did you purposely put it into these different areas, like a biographical area and then some case studies and then theory? And if you did, then why in that order? Right. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good question. A tough one. As well. <laughs> <laughs> why did I do it in this order? Do you know, I, I did some attempts at writing a book uh, at the beginning of, of this year. 
And it wasn't coming out right. And the reason why it wasn't coming out right is because I was, uh, again, doing a bit of the same mistake that I, I feel that I did in my PhD. Even if I finished my PhD with no corrections, in the right time, it was all fine. But my heart wasn't in it. Right? And when I started writing this book, I wanted to write a book where my heart would be in it. And what I found out in those different attempts of writing a book is that my heart couldn't be in it if the, sole, if the only audience that I had in mind were academic anthropologists. If I thought that I was only writing with this audience in mind, my, you know, I couldn't really be in it. So I thought, why don't I actually start exploring this through my biography, sort of talking about my life, talking about what I do, and rather than forcing lots of ideas, highly complex ideas, into the work, to let those ideas emerge as I start telling people a story. Now, as people who work in business and design anthropology and design research, we all know that storytelling, pardon me, that storytelling is a very, very powerful device in terms of, you know, even changing uh, the, the perception or the vision that you can have for a given product and service. Storytelling is an incredibly powerful device you know, in communication, in business, in all kinds of things. So what I sort of started to do was to try to use a form of storytelling by which the, the, the highly complex ideas of anthropology, you know, the, the sort of big organizing ideas like society, culture, etc., they would only come up when it was absolutely necessary. They would only be invited to the book when it was absolutely necessary. Right? And that's mm -hmm. a very, very different exercise of starting an, anthrop an anthropology book with a sort of big, highly complex theoretical construction and then yeah. eventually start going down to the research level, the ethnographic level, where you're talking to people, describing their behavior, their culture. Yeah. It's a very different strategic device. Uh, but the reason was that uh, for my heart to be in it, that's the only way that I could do things. Which actually, I believe, makes the book very compelling to read because as you're reading, you just want to know how the story ended. You're not really thinking yes. about how the theory is affecting how you work. You really don't even try to insinuate that this is the way to do this research. You just kind of state, this is what I chose and here's what happened during that process and here's what I learned, which I thought was really helpful. Because even though like, I would be one of those people who would understand the whole anthropological theory, it does give it a fresh approach to just hear a person talking about the way that they went through a process, which I found to be really um, an interesting aspect to the way that you wrote this book, because a lot of it was about how you maneuvered through different circumstances. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you was how a person who was studying a social science like psychology or anthropology might find their way into working in business because there does not seem to be a track for that at the moment. And it seems as though there's different stories about how to do that. So what would your advice be to a person like that? Okay, I, uh, you know, to answer that question, I think I have to tell you a story that happened to me recently that I was very touched by which is that there's this uh, young anthropologist, American anthropologist, called Krista. Well, uh, she finished her studies in anthropology, and these days my understanding is that she's working in, in, in a bar. You know, she's working in, in a completely different sort of um, industry, if you like. And she read the book, and she wrote to me on LinkedIn, 
And she said, I really enjoyed your book so much, and thank you for writing and whatever. And I said, well, thank you for, you know, getting in touch with me. And then I've asked her, look, would you mind sort of um, doing, uh, uh, saying something on Amazon for my book? Because I do have some reviews on Amazon from colleagues in the field, again, mostly from America, and mm -hmm. you know, they're very enthusiastic about the book, they like it, and so on and so forth. But I didn't have anything from a student, uh, or from somebody who just, finished, just recently finished uh, her studies. And, you know, and she said, sure, I'll do it. And I said, oh, okay, fine. And then, you know, after a couple of hours or so, I just logged into Amazon, and there was a comment. And, you know, she says something like, um, at a time where, you know, where we're told that the um, technical subjects, like, you know, the hard sciences, you know, physics, whatever, or, uh, you know, business is really the thing to go for. And anything that moves within the arena of the human sciences is a bit too soft, or considered a bit too soft. This book actually brings you some awareness that what we do can also be seen as technical, as, as, as a technical kind of knowledge, you know? And I'm not saying it word by word. She was far more articulate <laughs> in her <laughs> view than I am in reproducing it. But, you know, um, she, I, I, I think she did... I was very happy when I read that because she captured something of what my intentionality were when I was writing this book. You know, I have a strong belief that what we do is a technical thing. And that doesn't mean that you can't think about it intellectually at a sort of higher level, a more complex level. But there is technique in what we do. I'm a strong defense, I'm a strong advocate of that. So I think that the first thing I would say to a young person, you know, in psychology or anthropology, they're studying it or just finishing their studies, is to first acknowledge that your concepts aren't just good for thinking society. They're good for doing things in society. Look for what's technical about them. Experiment with them, even in your everyday life, you know. Start an autoethnography of yourself so that you can realize how the theory marries up with your own life. Start an autoethnography of how you use your iPhone so that you understand how technology actually comes into your life every day. And then by doing that, when the concepts come in and they're absolutely necessary, right, you realize that they're also technical concepts. They're good for doing things with now, in terms of, that's the principle, the big principle. In terms of communicating your value to companies, I think one of uh, the things that we say a lot to people who work in um, the human sciences in industry is that, you know, we, we're great assessors of what people's needs and desires are. You know, yes, you know, marketeers also do a form of research that has to do with assessing people's needs and desires. But I think the difference is that in the human sciences, and in anthropology in particular, we can assess the customer's needs and desires from many, many viewpoints. You know, we can assess them from a cultural viewpoint. If we're dealing with a particularly recognized kind of minority, and it makes sense to think of it from a cultural viewpoint. Because it doesn't, or just the fact you're dealing with a minority doesn't necessarily mean you have to think culture, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's important, and it's important to have that in your um, bag. And you have it in your bag if you study anthropology. So the other thing that I think is really, really important in terms of communicating our value is to say that, you know, we are, um, and I wouldn't say it like this if I was talking to somebody in a company, I would go for a different choice of words, but we are inductive scientists. What does that mean? In anthropology, again, we don't start with a very close hypothesis. We have a great capacity 
of um, analyzing data as we gather it. So we gather a bit of data, we change our initial question, we gather a bit more, we change our initial question. And if you're thinking about a product or service in particular, may that be, you know, an iPhone, or may that be Facebook, or may that be whatever it is, you know, that's an incredibly, incredibly important skill that anthropology gives you, probably better than any other discipline. Now, in terms of recognized paths, I would also say, write to people who are in the field, and understand what they're doing. Start a kind of report with them. They may not have a job for you, but they may tell you something important about how they actually started working in this field. So get in touch with them and, and, and ask them questions. Research them, Google them, see their interviews, see what they say. Um, and above all, have an eye for, uh, for what's out there. Because, for example, there's lots of big companies these days that are employing anthropologists and that are employing human scientists of other tribes, you know, Intel, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, um, there's lots and lots of companies. So have an eye for that as well. And speaking of working for these big companies, one of the questions that I had for you was, what would you say um, is usually the perception of an anthropologist or a social scientist coming in? Because I know in the book you talk about working with teams and how you have to explain how you, what you do and the value of that sometimes depending upon who you're working with. And even with other social scientists, they may not really be clear about the value that your particular you know, brand of science is bringing. So how do you navigate that? How do you explain what you do to people who may not really understand it? Yeah, I think there's two questions over there. There's one question that has to do with communication. And yes, you know, it's always, at least initially, uh, when working for a corporation, I think you really have to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. Because you can't lecture people. It's a corporation. People are not there to be lectured. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to educate people on the value of what anthropology is. And I think the best way to do that is often, for example, if you're hired by a corporation to go and do some field work on a given product or a given service, and I don't know, just think, thinking of an example to make it more concrete, like for example, if you're researching wine in the wine industry and you want to go to supermarkets and see how people are interacting with the wines uh, in a supermarket, you know, I would say actually take one of the people of the marketing department that hired you for that study and take them with you for a field day. You know, involve the people that you're working with in your process of doing research. The same thing in technology. You know, as much as you can do that. And companies like IDEO and so on have been doing that for some time now, which is that when, when there's a multidisciplinary team and there's an ethnographer in the project, the ethnographer and an engineer or a technologist of other kind, they actually go to the field together. So that's very, very important. Bring the people to the field with you so that they can experience it a bit and that they can experience the insights that they get and the kind of um, change of mind frame that can happen as a consequence of field work. So that's important. The other thing is, remember that you have to be very, very patient because, you know, people will have a set of questions which, which will be um, things like, you know, how many days are necessary for something to be considered an ethnography? Now, when you study anthropology in school, they tell you that to become a proper anthropologist, you have to go and, and do field work for a year, right? That, I mean, the ideal prototype of the anthropologist, which is a PhD anthropologist. Now, that doesn't happen in industry. 
you may have a couple of weeks, sometimes you have a couple of days. And sometimes you have to combine that with a survey or a quantitative sort of technique, uh, methodology. So, you know, so, so they're very different arenas. So you have to be ready to answer those questions and to be brave enough to say to people, it all depends on what you want. If your goals are to look at this, then maybe we have this amount of days that we can use in research. If your goal is to assess the software by two groups of people using it in a corporation, then maybe we can do a project in two weeks. But if your goal is about assessing the, how 15 different groups of people use a particular software in a corporation, then maybe we'll need a bit more of time, or we'll have to recognize the limitations of what that's going to bring to the study by the end of it. So it's very much giving the value proposition of anthropology to people according to their goals. But that's just sort of communication. Then there's another thing that you have to change, you yourself, that goes beyond communication. As an anthropologist or somebody with anthropological training, um, working in the capacity of, of an anthropologist in industry, um, that's something, there's something that you have to change yourself, which is your own mind frame. And that's not about communicating to people, that's about changing your own mind frame. Because a lot of the anthropological training is um, still very traditionally about lonely work, work that you do in isolation, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the whole ideal is that the way you do research and understand the world and consequently do things with it, is that, you know, you go somewhere and a particular group of people and you kind of hang around with them for extended periods of time. But at the end of it, you're the person that writes about them. You're the, the, the most important voice. You're kind of the lonely voice in a group of people. That's what the anthropologists, anthropological training, the image that is still very much conveyed to you, that you're the lonely researcher making sense of the whole thing. No, that's not what you're supposed to do in industry. Or, I mean, it is, but only to a small degree. So uh, one of the challenges, I think, especially for people who really went and did you know, PhDs in anthropology and, and, and things, is that we have, to, we have to learn how to change our mind frame again when you go back to work in industry, which is thinking that you might be doing, for example, an ethnographic assessment of a software, how the software is being used in the everyday lives of people in a given corporation. And you might be going to the field with somebody who is a designer, so with no formal anthropological training. <clears throat> and you have to listen to this person's observations exactly with the same degree of respect that you, that you, in acceptance, that you want um, bestowed on your own observations, in your mm -hmm. own comments of what is going on, right? So you, you, you really have to put yourself in a position of equality with other people and assume that you're doing research in a position with peers. And I don't think that kind of, uh, that involves a lot of humility, and I don't really think that position of equality is always that encouraged by traditional academic training. And that actually kind of leads into my next question, which was, do you think that universities should start training their students in social sciences to be prepared to work in business? Because, I like do. you had said, they kind of still stick to the more traditional training, and they don't really prepare the students for how are you going to create a proposal, for instance, for a corporation as opposed to a proposal for a grant for research. So what do you yeah. think about the education process and how that should possibly change? Look, I absolutely do. I wouldn't just say that it's a question of preparing students uh, to potentially work in for corporations. I would also say it's a question of preparing them 
to work in the public sector as well. It's a question of preparing them for other routes rather than the, the, the traditionally established um, academic routes, even because we know statistically, and I, don't, I mean, I think it's uh, most people who are in finishing a, a PhD anthropology, um, are finishing doctorates in anthropology these days, they will not be uh, teaching in, in an anthropology department in future, because, you know, there can only be so, so many people over there. So, of course, we have to think of other routes. I mean, having said that, there are some places where you can train uh, or receive some kind of training to become an anthropologist in business. I mean, Wayne State University uh, is, is one of them. Um, North Texas University, I think, is also one of them. Uh, there's people sort of in the field of design anthropology. There is a master's in design anthropology in Scotland, I think Dundee University, if I'm not mistaken. So there are a few places where you can go and, and try to look for some training. My advice to students would be, nonetheless, that they should be very clear about what they want. Because, you know, maybe you're not the kind of person who wants to work in industry or in business. Maybe you want to do a PhD or continue your, you know, postgraduate studies in some field that involves the anthropology of business and the anthropology of corporations. And there are some masters that are more oriented to that profile of person. So, you know, people won't necessarily prepare you to go to the business world and work in the business world. They will prepare you to think, again, a bit more academically about the question of business or about business as a theme. And there's some offers on that side. And then there's some offers that are a bit more practical in the sense that they combine the two. So you receive the knowledge of what it's like to think of business anthropologically and academically, but at the same time you're also receiving knowledge of... Um, how to be an anthropologist in business, and what you can do once your degree is finished. One of the other questions that I had for you was in the book, you talk about what it's like working in Portugal versus what it was like working in the UK, both as, yeah. uh, well, you were trying to work as a psychologist in the UK and yeah. working as an anthropologist. And I would like for you to talk a little more about that, because since the world itself is becoming a smaller and smaller place, I think it's important for people to understand how there could be differences in the way you're perceived in different uh, locations. So could you talk yeah. about that and some of the challenges you've had? Yeah, well, I know it's a hard comparison because, you know, in the UK I did a PhD in anthropology and then I went back to psychology and worked as a psychologist in, in the mental health sector, in the national health system for three years, I think. And in Portugal, when I came back, I decided to become an anthropologist in business. So I went back to my previous training in anthropology, I did research on what anthropologists in business were doing, and I started working for companies. So, you know, they're very, very different experiences. They're hard to compare. But what I think, you know, um, I suppose that I think the parallel between them that I kind of write about in the book and think about in the book is that I start the book with an experience where I'm actually uh, working as a clinical psychologist in a mental health unit, which is a bit unusual if you're writing a book about business. But, you know, what I'm actually trying to do in that chapter is to show that, you know, the patients in that particular unit, the people who use the unit, if you want to think about them as clients, and sometimes the term client is also used in mental health, so there's no reason why you can't, if you think about them, in that particular service, what was happening, in my view, is that they weren't being sufficiently, sufficiently involved in the experience of the service. 
in what the service should be like. And experience is a fundamental question when, when you're thinking about clients, whether in the public sector or in the business sector. So that, for me, was a way of telling a story in which people were dealt with more passively than actually being dealt with as sort of active producers of meaning. Now, if you take this into the way we kind of think of consumers in general these days, and that's when the book starts shifting into business, you know, we think of consumers more and more as producers of meaning. And we think of that for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that technology has allowed us all, and social networks have allowed us all to become endless producers of meaning. You know, we wake up tweeting stuff, we, then we post stuff on Facebook, then we're filming our friends and family, then we're doing whatever, and we're constantly co-creating it. And all of this is also influenced by brands, is also influenced by products, is also influenced by services. Because probably I think that the experience of doing a film of my family on iPhone is very different from the experience of, I don't know, doing a, a film of my family on Android device or any other kind of technology. Do you know what I mean? We do attach a sort of meanings of efficiency and efficacy and all kinds of things to the technology that we use. And they define us in return. So there is that kind of thing of thinking about experience and having experience at the core. What I felt as a psychologist working in England is that uh, experience weren't always at the core. What I felt coming back to Portugal and becoming an anthropologist in industry is that uh, there were lots of other people in the world trying to make experience at the core when working in business and that they were generally human scientists. So maybe I'll try to do that here. And that's what I've been doing here for the past four years. So it's basically sort of bringing the stuff that my colleagues are doing abroad to this country while, you know, bringing in my own perspective as well. But essentially to invite corporations, to make this invitation to corporations of, you know, start thinking themselves and their business models in terms of the consumer experience, the client experience, if you like. Does that answer your question? Yes, that does answer my question. That was really eloquent, actually. Um, another thing that I kind of, you kind of hinted at in the book, I don't know if I missed where you addressed it specifically, but in the study of anthropology, you usually bring in a lot of the historical and cultural context of the people that you're looking at. But when you're working in business settings where you're having specific um, things that you need to complete within a certain finite time frame, yes. how do you combine those things so that you have a fresh and really modern approach on the people or the situations that you're looking at, but you're still you know, giving some credence to the historical aspects of where these things might be coming from? Yeah, well, wow, that's another good question. Uh, I think, you know, history is a very tricky thing because we all live in history, but we can't clearly recognize it, mm -hmm. right? So history is a very tricky thing. Like, I'm, I'm going to bring this down to the industry level so that I can uh, answer your question. Um, if you if you work now if you work in the technology sector, I think as I do these days, and I, my work is becoming more and more about technology. Uh, you kind of ever since, uh, and again it's hard because I haven't I can't compare it because I haven't worked in technology elsewhere. But you kind of ever since from what you from what I read and what I know about colleagues abroad, that it's very different to work in technology in a country that has a long tradition of democracy. And now we're going to history, to your question about history. Mm -hmm. It's very different to sort of work in technology in a country with a long tradition of democracy. 
pardon me, which can be like, uh, for example, the Scandinavian countries, you know, northern uh, European countries, or to work in a country in, in technology development, in a country that with a relatively short history of democracy, like Portugal is. We have like 40 years of democracy, so we're actually, we're actually children to democracy. Do you know what I mean? It's very, very mm -hmm. they, this, this has large consequences to the way you design technology and to the way you think products and services. And one of the consequences is that, for example, if you look into participatory design, and what I do in this book is to start marrying up anthropology with ideas of co-creation and participatory design. And if you look into participatory design in historical context, you see that in Scandinavia, you know, there has a, a, a much longer tradition of social democracy. People really use participatory design. What does that mean? That means that if you're going to design a new product or a new service, you may have a, a group of people where in, at the same uh, meeting, at the same workshop, you'll have engineers who've been developing technology for ages and know all the technical stuff about developing technology. You may have um, people who are designers, you know, they're not sort of, uh, well, they're designers. And you may have people who are just sort of regular Uh, inverted commas, consumers, right, one neither. And they're all thinking together about how to innovate in a given product or service. Now, historically, you can only do this when there's a very long tradition of democracy. Because what you're saying is we can all vote for a particular product on an equal basis, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. again, if you take that, if you take that parallel, into a place like Portugal, that's a, lot, that's, a, that's a much harder thing to do. All right? Precisely because we have a very uh, short history of democracy. We have a very long history of colonialism and a very short history of democracy. And those are two difficult things to have when you're doing development and innovation. Because, you know, um, the idea that you can actually sort of do away with people's authority and expertise and invite different people to create around a particular product or service. Much like the invitation that I do in my book, which is for different audiences to create meaning about it, that is a lot, lot harder. Because the less democracy you have, the more belief you tend to have on authority and the expertise of authority. So mm -hmm. that's one point. Uh, the other point about history, which is interesting in terms of questions of technological development, And to go back to your question, how do you bring the, the historical understanding of people and what they do to the process? You know, it's very hard, for example, when you're designing products and services in technology, like Portugal is, for markets like Brazil and countries in Africa, there used to be who we used to have colonial relations with. You know, the Portuguese were colonialists six, six centuries ago. There's still something going on by which we think that we tend to know what people of those countries want better than they know themselves, right? And that's, that's a really tricky thing to assume. Uh, because, you know, information is everywhere these days. People have access to information. Anyone can, people are more and more informed and they, they, you know, they know what they want from products and services better and better. So that's the real challenge in a place like this to bring history into context. Oh, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I think it's really, I think it's a question that a lot of uh, different social scientists are trying to grappling with, especially with technology, because the world is moving so fast. Um, it kind of leads into something that I wanted to ask you, which was, 
Now, having gone through your journey and where you are now, what do you think about what anthropologists and other social scientists can bring in the future that will kind of help shape business in a different way? Instead of only just being more of a support staff, like how, how can they be a part of the initial conversation? Right. You know, I'm a firm believer in, in sort of combining anthropology and ethnography with um, co-creation, if you think of it more in terms of marketing or participatory design. You know, co-creation and participatory design are very, very similar terms. It's just that in the marketing industry, people tend to talk more about in terms of co-creation and in the design industry and technology more in terms of participatory design. I'm a firm believer that anthropology and industry and participatory design should be together as much as they can. And I'm not the only believer in that. Uh, thank God for that. Uh, there's a recent book that, has been, uh, that came out this year called Design Anthropology. And it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting book. Uh, George Marcus, uh, as a which I think is a fabulous academic anthropologist, uh, as, as a really good contribution to it. And people over there are trying to grapple precisely the question that you're, you've just asked me. So, and they do so by also interacting with practice and inviting some people who are practitioners to actually also write and, and, and create meaning on that book. So I think they did that in, in, in uh, an efficient way. I do still think it's a book that academics will read more than the general audiences, but I do think that it's a book of value, and they did that over there. And they try precisely they try to answer those questions. I think the, the way anthropologists can have more of um, participation in, in that business conversation from the very onset is again by explaining very clearly what their value proposition is. Anthropologists have a great capacity to think differences in culture and differences in society across different markets, and that's a plus, that's a big advantage. Anthropologists have great capacity to look at an organization and listen to the people who are at the low uh, sort of strata of that organization with the same respect and empathy that they listen to the managerial level. And that's very, very useful. Again, if you're dealing with questions of technological development or any other question, you might be doing intercultural consultancy. You know, you might be working for a multinational that is having problems adapting to the culture of a particular place where they're trying to settle. And then, you know, the anthropologist as an intercultural expert can actually contribute to that as well. So there are many, many ways to answer your question by which we can engage in a conversation from the very onset. I think bringing participatory design to the table and combining it with ethnography is one way. It is certainly my way or the way that I found that makes sense to me. Uh, doing intercultural consultancy is very, very important, more so in a global world, and we have a lot to say and to bring the conversation, you know, of anthropology right from the beginning, going from there. Um, and I also think that's just generally explaining the value proposition of anthropology in a very clear way. In this, for example, in these two examples I've just given you, which is that, you know, as an anthropologist, I have much greater, I have great capacity to go to an organization and give you an integrated view of the different levels of people that work there. For example, towards a given software, towards whatever it is that you're studying in your project. Or, uh, you know, and I have great capacity to actually see the differences that you can't see in different markets because that's what I've trained for. So be very clear about the value proposition. So, Pedro, I wanted to know, what is the main takeaway that you would like a reader of your book to have when they finish with what you've written? 
Well, you know, it depends on who that reader is. Because again, you know, because I, I wrote this book with many different audiences in mind, I, I kind of think, I really think it depends on who the reader is. But, you know, if it's a young uh, person who just finished their anthropology studies and looks at the book and says, oh, you know, maybe there's, actually there is some value in what I've studied and there's lots of things that I can do with it. If I sort of really invest in, in a way of making my training consistent with the needs of the market, then, you know, um, I'll, I'll be very happy with that, you know. If there is, um, I don't know, a practitioner, you know, a colleague in the field that looks at the book, and I've had some really good feedback from colleagues, so I'm, that makes me very happy, you know, who looks at the book and sort of thinks, oh, there's a way of doing things in practice that I hadn't thought before, then that makes me really, really happy as well. You know, if there is a critique, and I've also received some critiques, which is great, you know, from, uh, from colleagues in the field to say, okay, I can understand that you tried to write a popular book, but you did push it a bit too much on that passage or the other, you know. And, you know, it comes with the territory of writing a book for general audiences. But I appreciate those critiques as well, because they do make you a, a better writer, even if you're writing for a general audience rather than a street one. Um, and, you know, finally, if there, um, you know, if there's somebody, a more traditional or conventional anthropologist, and by that I mean somebody located primarily in academia, who looks at the book and actually sees anything useful at all, you know, can go beyond the prejudice that this is a book for general audiences, and actually be open-minded enough to read it for the ideas, and wants to interact with me about the ideas. It doesn't necessarily mean agreeing with the ideas, it just means being open to interact with them. Then I'll be very happy as well. The thing, and this will sum it up, the thing that, I will, that I'm most happy about is that I, I want to feel that I've written a book in the, social, in the applied social sciences in a way that is so clearly written that people can even disagree with it. That's my greatest victory. People can even disagree with it. Because the language is not so circular and complex to the point that you don't know where you stand against it or in favor of it. You can disagree with it. So if people, you know, if it's clear enough for people to do that, I'm happy. That's great. Okay, you let us know what you're working on now and what some of your future projects are, if you have an idea. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, I'm consulting for Critical Software. They're a uh, Portuguese technology multinational. And, you know, it's, it's quite a challenge because they have lots of research going on, but always in the applied physical sciences and engineering. So I'm the first anthropologist they ever saw. <laughs> I don't know, it's over there doing ethnographic assessments. And I do have the feeling that I'm driving some of them partially crazy. <laughs> and, you know, but it's also that I also have the feeling, you know, it was very satisfactory because I had my first sort of big presentation with them. And one of the feedback from that meeting, that was, you know, I mean, there were critiques there as always, but one of the feedback of that meeting is that, oh, we, 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 we really understood what an anthropologist does. So, you know, I think for our first assignment with them, I think that's great feedback, and I'm really, really happy with that. So I'm going to carry on with them and carry on with technology. And now at the beginning of the year... I've got another consultancy which is not in the technology sector, but, you know, it's, it's an early beginning, so I'd rather not talk about it now. I'm starting a second book called People-Centered Innovation 2. There will be a sequel. So, you know, so I'm already starting my second book. And finally, which is very, very exciting, I'm, I'm starting to engage in conversations with uh, one or two 
well, with two places in America, you know, that hire anthropologists. So there's a chance that I, that next year, who knows, it's very much early start, very much beginning of the conversation, but there's a chance that I may go to America and live there next year and work there next year, which is an experience that I always kind of want, or that I wanted for a long time. So I'm, I'm sort of excited about it. So anyway, so I may drop by Houston, Texas and invite you for <laughs> Well, that would be great. Well, thank you very much thank for you very much. Can I just say something? I'm so sorry, just very quickly. Go ahead. I've got two friends. It's going to be a shameless plug that I'm going to do. But I've got two <laughs> friends that in May, um, Patricia Sanderland and Richard Denny, they're very well known in the industry. And on May, uh, they're going to publish with Left Coast Press the, uh, a book called The Handbook of Business Anthropology. And it's going to be a contribution of 60 people located in academia and located in practice, all thinking questions of anthropology and business. It's going to be an amazing book. And, you know, if the field isn't fully settled, it will be in May when this book comes out. So I just want to draw people's attention to that. And well, that thank you very, very much exciting. for the interview. Yes, thank you so much. And when you finish your second book, please let us know so we can interview you again. Absolutely, I will. Today we've been listening to Mr. Pedro Oliveira, author of People Center Innovation, Becoming a Practitioner in Innovation Research, published by Biblio Publishing, the Educational Publisher Incorporated, and available on Amazon.com. <laughs>